Welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. Last week, we took a break from our typical subject matter in books to address the topic of faith and offer some encouragement in some difficult times. And today, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to take a break from our normal discussion of reading material. And rather than discussing the matter of faith primarily this week, we're going to talk about fear. I've been reluctant to say much, uh, either on this program or on social media, because I've wanted to sit back and think things through before I made a statement, and I've thought this through, and I have a few things that I want to say today. If you don't like this, you know, that's whatever. Everybody has an opinion right now, but I want to direct your thoughts to some scripture. And we need to stop and think about Scripture in a difficult time, especially in regards to the topic of fear. Now, having said that, I want to direct your attention to the book of Numbers, Numbers the 13th chapter. As you're turning there in your Bible, and I hope you will pull out your Bible and open up your Bible and follow along so that we understand what the Bible is saying here. It's not about my opinion. What's the Bible speaking forth for us? In Numbers chapter 13, Israel has arrived at the promised land. They are on the border of Canaan, the long-awaited promise that God has given them. He has called them out of Egyptian bondage. He took them to Sinai and appeared to them gloriously in their presence in a frightful way. He delivered a covenant law to them and offered a covenant relationship that they initially accepted but then turned around and rejected through the worshiping of the golden calf, which angered God greatly and in the midst of which the Levites had to kill 3,000 Israelites to appease the wrath of God and keep God and his anger from breaking out on Israel. They've waded through all of that. They've received the tabernacle. They've received the law again. They've submitted themselves in covenant faith to God. And now they are on the borders of Canaan waiting to go in. They send out 12 spies, and 10 of the spies come back with a faithless report that changes the mindset of the entire nation. And there's a little lesson here about leadership. Leaders have a very loud and important voice when major decisions are made in God's kingdom. The message comes back, Numbers chapter 13, verse 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. I want to underline that strong, they are stronger than we. Who's the real enemy here in this scene? Is it the inhabitants of Canaan? Or is it the devil and the fear that he has created amongst God's people? Though they have dwelt in the midst of God's presence at Sinai, and though he has gone before them in the pillar of the fire and the cloud of smoke, though he has been there in the tabernacle, yet they have tremendous fear, fear of man, and fear of the kingdoms of this world and the devil 
more than they are afraid of their heavenly father. Trying to combat that faithless witness testimony, Joshua and Caleb speak up in chapter 14, verse 9, and they say there, Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Do not fear the people of the Lord. The major crisis that is coming upon the nation of Israel is a matter of fear. Who do they fear? Do they fear man or do they fear God? You cannot fear both man and God at the same time. One of the two will win out. Joshua and Caleb beg and beg with the people not to fear the people nor to rebel against the Lord. Yet the national crisis cannot be averted. The nation of Israel listens to the faithless witness, and as a reaction, God initially promises to destroy them through pestilence. Yet Moses, being the brave and courageous leader that he was, stood before God and begged God not to cause a pestilence to come upon the nation and to wipe it out entirely. Yet death could not be entirely avoided. Though God did not send a pestilence, he did sentence them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Israel, when they had heard the faithless witnesses, they cried out saying how they wished they could return to Egypt and that they had died in the wilderness. So ironically, God decides that they can die in the wilderness on the way back to Egypt, and Israel sits out on a 40-year death march. Fast forward in time to Numbers chapter 32. Israel has almost completed the 40-year death march, And now as they approach the borders of Canaan, once again, there are three tribes that step forward, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and they ask Moses that they be given their inheritance on the eastern side of Jordan. When they make this request, Moses gets very upset. And when you read that, you may not at first understand why Moses is so upset, but whenever you read Numbers 32, you have to hear Numbers 13 and 14, the first case of Israel's faithlessness on the borders of Canaan. All throughout Numbers 32, there are echoes and allusions and quotations that are coming from Numbers 13 and 14. And what the passage is teaching us is that Moses is upset because Israel, at least these three tribes here, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they are faithless and they are fearful of entering in and possessing the land. This is deja vu. They are in danger of reenacting what caused the 40-year death march. Moses is rightfully angry and upset, and he gives a very strong rebuke to these three tribes, of which they repent. And not only do they repent, they volunteer to be on the front firing line, if you will, in the battle that is going to take place in Canaan, and they pledge that they will fight shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand with their brethren until all tribes receive their inheritance. Flash forward now again to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Here Moses is standing on the precipice of Canaan. He is not allowed to enter in because of his and Moses, his and Aaron's sin. He's standing there and he's going to give his final address. Great leaders are often known for their final words. For there you can sense what is dearest and most important to them in that moment. Words of encouragement, words of great warning. Listen attentively as Israel is preparing to wage 
the invasion to take over the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I command you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. That's God's words to Israel. Be strong. Take courage. Do not be afraid of the inhabitants as you once were, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. What an awesome promise he gives them. He follows this up by addressing Joshua, who is going to replace Moses. The Bible says, Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So to both Israel and to the leader, to Joshua, who is going to lead the conquest, God warns them to not be fearful of the enemies who lie ahead. Israel's greatest enemy was their own fear. God was promising to be with them, to protect them, to never forsake them, yet fear was still their greatest challenge that lay ahead. And so four times here in this passage, we have an addressing of their fear. Twice stated positively, twice stated negatively. When he's saying, be strong and of good courage, he's positively saying, overcome your fear. When he's warning them, do not be fearful or afraid, he is warning both the people and the leadership that they must overcome their fear if they are going to be pleasing to God. Do not miss this point. The devil's greatest weapon against Israel was not his physical kingdoms. It was their own fear. If the devil could frighten Israel more then they reverence God, the devil would win the victory as he had done 40 years prior. Fast forward with me again now to Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We've noticed four times God has addressed Israel's fear as Moses is saying his final farewell. Now in Joshua chapter 1, as Joshua stands before the people ready to lead the charge into the conquest, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound familiar? He continues, Be strong and of good courage. For this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I want to point out two things here. First of all, as the baton is passed from Moses to Joshua, Joshua now is operating under different circumstances than that of Moses. God is not speaking to Joshua face to face as he did with Moses. 
Joshua is going to have to pick up the law, which was written down by Moses, and he's going to have to read and meditate on it day and night and live his life as a leader of God's people based upon the revealed word of God and with the guidance of now the priesthood. But second of all here, again, we have four words addressing the fear of Israel. He says, be strong and of good courage. Only be strong, be very courageous. And a third time, be strong and of good courage. And then fourthly, the negative, do not be afraid nor dismayed. Those are the same words that were spoken to Moses. Now they are reiterated to Israel eight times. Get this, eight times. God is warning them, do not be fearful. Take courage, take heart. All throughout Israel's history, their greatest challenge was not fearing man and remembering to fear God. Now, you would think that they would catch on to that after a while, but all throughout their entire history, they feared man rather than God, and as a result, they constantly found themselves under God's wrath and in a situation of great calamity. Think about the book of Judges. After they've possessed the promised land, it starts getting dispossessed. Why? Because they don't fear God and they fear man. Some of the leaders that God raises up, men like Barak and Gideon, what was their greatest crime? They were fearful. They needed to have courage pumped into them so that they can do what God is promising he will do. The fear of man reigned great in Israel. Flash forward again to 1 Samuel chapter 17. The scene is that all of God's army and the king which they had asked for are living in terror of the Philistines, and in particular, they fear one man. They fear Goliath. They are terrified of man, for they have lost sight of the fear of God. What's God's solution in the moment? He raises up a young shepherd boy, an untrained boy, a boy who is mocked by both the armies of Israel and the Philistines, yet the only person in the whole scene who has a fear of God rather than a fear of man, a man after God's own heart. And through this young man, God delivered Israel in a triumphant battle. That young man, as we know, grows up to be the king of Israel and the greatest king that physical Israel ever had. I want to direct your attention now to a psalm that David wrote, Psalm 118. I want to break this up into three sections. We begin with verses 1 through 8. Listen carefully. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Listen to verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. David had learned the lesson in his lifetime. If God is for you, what is there to be afraid of? 
verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. You want salvation? You want strength? You rest upon the Lord. It continues, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The writer is in great distress, and he's saying, I'm not going to die. I'm going to march through God's gates by his grace to receive his salvation, for he has answered me. Now that Next to last line, for he has answered me. That ought to ring a bell when you hear that. David wrote another psalm in the midst of distress, Psalm 22, in which he was depicted as the suffering servant. And he was prophesying about the death of Christ. And in verse 21 of Psalm 22, the same message rings out, for you have answered me. In great distress, the Messiah, his voice is heard and God answers him with salvation. Here in the midst of Psalm 118, the Messiah comes into focus. He's in distress, yet he will prevail. He will march through the gates, for the Lord has answered. Listen to the very next verse, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, does that verse sound familiar to you? It ought to. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, the Lord himself quoted it. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. He is a psalm that praises the faithfulness of the Lord in difficult times as the Lord himself is provoking the Jewish leaders in a way that will spawn his very death and bring about the greatest victory through death that the world has ever seen and thereby establish God's holy temple not in physical Jerusalem, but in the church. Here is the true Israel of God in the person of Jesus Christ plunging into battle to take possession of the inheritance which God has promised him with no sense of fear whatsoever. The new David is taunting the giant and daring him to do battle so that he can win the ultimate victory for God and his people. If God is for him, who can be against him? Now, what's the application of all this, as interesting as it may be? What are we supposed to do with all this? I ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews, the last chapter, Hebrews chapter 13. Having written an entire epistle reminding Christians of what they have in Christ and what Christ has done on their behalf, 
The writer begins the last chapter by reminding the brethren to let brotherly love continue, to show hospitality, to share in the suffering and the persecution of other saints, to remain pure and not to become defiled with sexual temptation, to not become covetous, In other words, to place their eyes on the heavenly treasure rather than earthly mammon. And then he says in verse 5, For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Does this quotation in chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 sound familiar? I hope you recognize where it's coming from. The first half comes from Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua chapter 1. This is the message of Moses in his final address and the message of Joshua as Israel is gathered together in battle array ready to go conquer the promised land. The second half of the quotation comes from the passage that Jesus quoted from as he was waging war with the devil himself in the form of the Jewish leadership. Brethren, these are not words of peace. They are words calling God's people to overcome fear and enter into the fray for the glory of God if they are to possess the promised land. This is a powerful call to battle. Now, I'm going to be very pointed, and this may make some people uncomfortable and some people upset. As I I look at social media, I can't help but think that the whole world, including some of God's own people, have lost their minds and gone mad. There is a sense of fear and terror that is eating up even the faithful of God. I'm not in any way trying to make light of the serious nature of the pandemic that is upon us, but I do want to offer a strong warning to Christians not to be swept up in the panic and the fear and terror that is seizing our nation. If you can't watch the news and you can't get on social media without losing your mind or getting worked up into a frenzy of panic and terror, get off social media and turn off the TV. Down on your knees and pray and pick up your Bible and seek the source of faith and strength from God. Realize this. There is only so much that we can do as humans. Ultimately, everything depends on God. I don't care how much social distancing you want to do. I don't care how much you wash your hands. I don't care how many cases of toilet paper that you purchase. The situation is outside of your control. It has never been within the power and control of man. If that terrifies you to the point that you cannot function or obey God, it's time to ask yourself, What kind of God you believe in? And I'm going to say this specifically to church leaders. What example are you setting for God's people? Do you live in faith or in holy fear? 
What kind of message are we sending not only to our people, but to the world around us? Christians ought to be the calm factor in society. Christians ought to be the ones who are not afraid of death. But yet Christians are as scared and panicky as complete heathens who have absolutely no hope. Now is not a time for God's people to hide in fear of man or of disease, but to stand forth and proclaim God's hope for a literally dying world. I want to share four reasons why it is vital that God's people not shrink in fear. Number one, to live in fear is to fail to realize who we are as Christians. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to read verse 7 in a minute, but I want you to realize the context in which Paul is writing. He is writing from a prison cell facing death. And he's writing to young Timothy to offer him some final words of encouragement, much like Moses did to Joshua. And I want you to listen what Paul said on this occasion. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want to read that again for you because I think we're missing it. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Write this verse down. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Write it down. Put it on sticky notes all over your house. Put it on your TV if that's where your fear is coming from. On your front door so that if you have to go out of your house, you remember this. On your steering wheel so that you remember it as you drive. Everywhere you go, remember God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. May calmer, cooler heads prevail, and may God's people not be depicted as a terrified group of folks. Number two, fear indicates a lack of faith in God. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaking, verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." I want you to pick up on the last part of this passage. This is tied back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26, where Jesus previously spoke about God taking care of sparrows. And in that context, the, the point was you have to have faith that God will provide for your necessities in life, for food and for clothing. And if you cannot serve God because you are so worried about where your meal is coming from or what clothes you're going to wear, you will be lost. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is saying, if you are so scared about your physical well-being, your health, your very life, that your fear keeps you from obeying God, you will be lost. Fear God more than you fear the devil 
and his death. Which brings us to our third point. To live in fear, in fear of death, in fear of sickness, is to live in the bondage of the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, and verse 14, the Hebrew writer had this to say, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. It was understandable on one hand that the world was in fear and in bondage to the devil because he had the power of death until Christ came and died and took away the power of the devil. Now, do we believe that or not? Do we believe that Jesus has conquered the devil and that there is no reason to fear death? I worry about my brethren who are terrified of dying from an illness to the point where they're thinking about ceasing to worship God. Number four, to live in fear is to fail to enter the promised land. The Hebrew writer had this to say, and we've now come full circle. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. If we are to enter the rest that yet remains, like God told Israel and Joshua, be strong and of good courage, Do not be afraid. What can man, what can the devil do to me? May God bless his people in difficult times with a sense of strength and peace that comes only through Christ and his word. Be strong. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Do not let the devil win the day. Take these words in the spirit of love and concern in which they are offered. May God bless his people in difficult times. Before you go, I want to say one more thing. I thought about this after I'd finished recording, and I want to add this back in. I have included the full version of our theme song, Ever Almighty, as recorded by Brother Andrew Martin, and written by Brother Joey Hickey. And I ask that you please listen to the entire song and think carefully about the words. I believe it's a beautiful song, well written, and the words are very timely for where we are. Thanks and enjoy. Here we stand on this foundation, hope as an anchor, faith is our flag, the cross as our curse, the word as our way. Through wars and rumors of wars, still you are sovereign, still you are Lord. Above the confusion, your covenant stands. You have not, not for a moment, abandoned.
promise to save. You will not, not for a moment, withdraw your hand. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty always. Here and now, stone upon stone, the house you are building, a people your own, your kingdom unshaken, the church is alive. Now as one, with hearts all aflame, all our devotion to your great name, exalted forever, Lord Jesus, you reign. We will not, not for a moment, forget your promise to save. We will not, not for a moment, To sit on your throne, no, you won't share your glory. All the praise is yours alone, you're worthy, worthy. Fear doesn't get to sit on your throne, no, you won't share your glory. All the praise is yours alone, you're worthy, worthy of all. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty always.